One is a theme, and today we're looking at one by one. One by one. And the one that I'm looking at, who is going to be one by the one, is a conversation that occurred a week after the first Easter. Okay, a week after the first Easter. And the first Easter is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. It was the Sunday. Um, I'm pretty convinced that this event is truly about a man who was one by one. And uh, you will see that when we finally get to the end. But first, let me ask you a question. So here it is. You ready? Have you ever doubted something so strongly that you could just you just could not believe it until you had the proof right in front of you? Have you ever doubted something so completely that unless you held it, it just, I don't believe that? Okay? I'll give you a couple of illustrations. But first of all, in the 90s, I went over and helped my mate. He runs a, a, a campsite in Scotland. And... Um, it's called Teen Ranch, and uh, I was helping him. And one of the guys on staff, Jock, said, have you ever had haggis? And I said, what's haggis? Now, he then proceeded to tell me, apparently people know what haggis is. Well, I had no clue. It's a sheep's stomach, you know? And I'm going, why would anyone want to eat a sheep's stomach, you know? And because my nickname, my last name is Wooly, and my nickname was Sheep, I'm thinking, that's just not going to go down well with me. I don't want to be eating sheep's stomachs. And um, anyway, I'm going, no, I don't, they don't, no, no, can't believe that. Don't go there. I don't even want to see that and I don't want to be a part of it. So no, that's not in my mental capacity to even think about that. And he said, well, I've got something even better for you. He says, have you ever tried a deep fried haggis? Now, with that, my ears pricked up. Deep fried, that's okay. When you put the word fried in something, I'm happy with that. I've had fried Mars bars, they're pretty good. You put batter around anything and put it in a deep fry, I'm, I'm happy with just a slice of bread and eat it that way. Here we go, and he said, you can have it with chips. Let's have a look, here it is. Fried haggis with chips. And it was pretty good. It was pretty good. You're still you're not convinced. I said in the first service, I said, you know, I came from the era when it was called Kentucky Fried Chicken, you know. Now it's just called KFC because they don't want the word fried in there because it's unhealthy to talk about frying things. Fried haggis, it was fantastic. But, you know, up until then I went, nah, this is, you can't eat a sheep's stomach. That's ridiculous. What would you do that? What did the sheep eat before I'm eating it? You know what I mean? Like, come on. Anyway. A couple of other things. Let me show you some other statements that were taken, and these were taken from official documents and newspapers and magazines that were read during the day. And um, this is what the authorities had to say. In 1840, anyone travelling at the speed of 30 miles per hour would surely suffocate. How's that, eh? 30 miles an hour. Whew. We get into a 747 today and you fly at about 570 miles an hour. And uh, which is about apparently 920 kilometres an hour, so you're nearly hitting 1,000 kilometres an hour. So it must blow them away back in the 1840s. Here's another one, electric lights. In 1878, electric lights are unworthy of serious attention. Isn't that amazing? They were happy to you know, pull out the little match and light the gas lights as they went down the street. It was so much easier instead of flicking a switch, don't you think? No. <laughs> Thomas Edison, only, uh, what is it, two years later... Uh, no, a year later in 1879, brought about the light globe the, 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 with a filament and he was able to produce, well, it pretty much changed the world. It was like computers for us today. Lights, really, okay. 
1901, no possible combination can be united into a practical machine by which men shall fly. <laughs> 1901. It was only two years later that the Wright brothers got their flight machine off the ground. I think it only lasted for about half an hour, but it was enough to say man can fly. Here's another one. It's from a scientist. You've got to watch what they say. This foolish idea of shooting at the moon is basically impossible. 1926. How can anyone get to the moon? Well, I remember sitting in uh, year six at school, sixth class, I should say, and July 20th, uh, 1969, watching men walk on the moon. It was only 43 years later that they did that. Foolish idea of trying to get up there and do that. And here's the last one. Another scientist. To harness the energy locked up in matter is impossible. Well, that was in the 30s. 15 years later after that, they dropped a bomb on Japan, ended the Second World War. It's impossible. These things are not impossible. And... What we're going to be looking at today is a man that was one by one because he thought this is impossible, what he was confronted with. What he came across in discussion was not feasible in any possible way. I suppose there's always been those who have said it just can't be done. It can't be done. Who would have ever thought that you could deep fry haggis? I mean, it just can't be done, but it can. There's those who have doubted, those who, when presented with the facts, still find it hard to believe. So, as I said, my question at the beginning, have you ever doubted something so strongly that you just couldn't believe it until you had the proof right in front of you? Well, in John 20, we have this account of one man who could not believe until he had the proof right in front of him. What's his name? Thomas, that's right. Thomas is the man. And it concerned the report that he'd heard that Jesus had risen from the dead. Okay, he'd heard that Jesus had risen from the dead. And let me show you the verse, it's John twenty twenty five. So the disciples, they say to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, place my finger into the marks of the nails, place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, there's a big call there. There's a lot of little boxes that have to be ticked before he's going to get to that point of believing. So let us try and unpack this verse that Thomas is doubting here, uh, that it tells us, and show us how this man actually was one by one. He was one over. Now, first, I want to just want you to note that it was the disciples that tell him, we have seen the Lord. Okay? The disciples. Now, just think about this. These were ten good men that said they'd seen Jesus. Not one, not two, not a lady, which is Mary, I'll explain that to you in a minute, this was the ten good men that this man had travelled with over these three years. Now, you've got to remember it's only ten because what happened to Judas? He'd hung himself, he wasn't around, and uh, Thomas was absent. So these ten good men are saying, Thomas, we've seen him alive. We've seen the Lord. Now, these guys had spent three years with Thomas travelling around the countryside with Jesus. They lived in each other's pockets. I can just imagine what it would have been like sitting around the fire at night, cooking the damper or whatever you do in Israel at the time, just sitting around talking with Jesus. I mean, these men were quite competent. These men were honest, well, except for 
Judas, who was you know, in his hand in the money bag, but they were true friends, I imagine. They'd both seen and experienced amazing miracles. They'd all been a part of that together. That was the journey they'd been on. And, you know, the more I read about Jesus, I feel the more that the, the conversations around that fire would have been quite deep and personal. Jesus doesn't miss opportunities to get down deep with you. He wants to unpack you. And he was going to send these guys out to change the world. So I'm sure those conversations were real around that, that fire. They were a band of brothers living together with Jesus. But for some good reason, I don't know what it is, Thomas is saying this to them. Look, guys, thanks very much, but your words are just not good enough. I don't know what happened to Thomas. Thanks, but I don't believe. And what were their words? Their words were, we have seen the Lord. We have seen the Lord. Now, that in itself is a very big statement. It's a big call, isn't it? Realising that Thomas and all of them had seen Jesus dead. They're testifying that Jesus is alive. All ten of them are testifying that Jesus is alive. And the reason they were saying this is because we're told that they had both seen and talked with him. Okay, so it was the conversations, it was the engagement of the brain as well as the sight. They had the package. We have seen the Lord. The conversation recorded for us starts this way. On the evening of that day, that being the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, just back up a bit. See where it says the first day of the week? Well, that first day of the week spoken of here is the day Jesus rose from the dead. So this is what we call Easter Sunday. And this is the day that he got back up. Okay? Now, you'll notice that the verse states on the evening of that Sunday. On the evening of that Sunday. But let me take you back to the morning of that first day of the week. Because we're told in verse 16 that Mary had spoken to Jesus at the tomb. Now, she thought he was the gardener and she says to him, hey, where have you put the body? But then he reveals himself to her and he says, I've got a job for you, Mary. I want you to run back and tell the boys that I'm alive. So she does, puts it back to them. And what we find is that Peter and John, they take off back to the tomb. And we're told that uh, they run back to there, but they find this huge stone that's rolled away. Now, they saw it put in place, but it's removed. They run into the tomb, and the body's gone. The, the clothes are there, but the body's gone. Wow. Maybe Mary is wrong. I mean, do we believe her? What? And they hot-foot it back home again that first day of the week in the morning. But now we get to this verse, and it's on the evening of that day. So these men have had, what, a day to think it over. Just imagine what it's like up in that room. Where is he? Mary says this. We've seen our eyes, the cloth there, the rocks moved. What, where do we... And they've had all day to talk about it. It's out in the open. 
A whole day's passed and they've had time to think it over and I wonder how they felt with that. Well, I think we have a clue in those few words of 19. And the clue comes in this way. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. The doors are locked because they're scared. The doors are locked because they're scared. It seems to me that they were just trying to make some sense of what's happened and they've had all day to do it. You see, it was only a week ago that Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. We call it Palm Sunday, remember? He was being acknowledged. He was being treated as the king. They were taking their robes off. They were laying the palm leaves down. They were hailing him as the Messiah. The whole, in fact, we're told, the whole town was praising him. That's what the words read. He'd been lifted up, magnified. He's the one coming to save us. But as of only three days ago, only three days ago, they watched Jesus on a cross breathe his last words and say, it's finished. And with that, he gave up his spirit. And they saw the Romans take it down, take him down. They saw him being put into a tomb. They saw the, roll, the, the stone rolled across. He was crucified. He was dead and he was placed into that tomb. He was gone. They'd seen it with their own eyes. And if you and I were there, we, I'm sure, would have come to the same conclusion. He's gone. It's the end. What were we doing for these last three years? Wandering around with this man telling us all these wonderful things. He's gone. He's out of here. But something's happened, you see. Because in the morning, Peter and John say it's empty. Mary says, I've met him and he's told me to tell you he's alive. So there must have just been total confusion. Bewilderment. Like, it would have been surreal. Really? How does that happen? I mean, it's not every day people get back up from the dead. Yes, Jesus actually did it a couple of times, and we saw that. And now, and he talked about it, didn't he? But really, how does all that work? Well, have a look. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked for fear of the Jews, uh, um, locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said to them, peace be with you. I tell you what, that's what they need. They needed peace brought right into the midst of them because they would have been all over the show. I think I would have been. This was crazy. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So all their questioning had been answered. They've had a whole day to think this through and finally he's in the midst of them. He's bringing peace to them and he's saying, look at my hands. Here I am, I'm amongst you, I am alive. Mary was correct. Have you got it, boys? You're thinking right now? Into the middle of them pops the risen Lord. That's in itself just an unexpected blessing. They were not looking for that. And their whole conversation, I imagine, would have been focused on him, and now he's amongst them, in the flesh. Did you notice their response, though, in verse 20 there? They were glad. They were glad. I imagine that's an understatement. I'm sure they would have been overjoyed when they finally saw him. I know I would have been. Woohoo! How does this work? I mean, glad doesn't really carry it enough for me. John probably just doesn't have words to explain what that feeling was like when he saw Jesus alive in his midst. What a contrast. They went from fear 
to now being overjoyed with gladness. One minute they're questioning, the next minute they're going, wow, he's here. But notice who wasn't there. We get to verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. It was the absent Thomas. Thomas misses out on meeting with the risen Lord. And when we read this in John 26, verse 26, we have this words. Eight days later, which is one week after Jesus' death, his disciples were inside again. So Thomas gets told about this on the first day of the week or at some point. And then we read in verse 26, so there's this period of time that's gone on. We get to verse 26, eight days later, his disciples are together again in this room. I wonder what happened in that week. To leave that open. I wonder why Thomas wasn't there on that first day, though. That's my question. Why wasn't he there? Why wasn't he with the other ten disciples? Maybe he was planning his escape. I mean, if they'd come after Jesus and killed him, maybe now he's thinking, I'm going to be pursued by the Romans. Maybe I'm the one that's going to be chased down and killed. And you know what? Sometimes it's better not to be in a big posse together. Let's separate. We have more chance of you know, escaping out into the countryside singly than all together. Why would you want to lock yourself into a room and be surrounded and, I don't know, burn the place down with us in it? I, who knows what Thomas is thinking? Maybe he just desired to grieve alone. Maybe he was just oh, so overcome with the loss of his Lord, this man that he put his life into. That grief just filled him. And he couldn't meet with the others. He was so sad. So sad. Or maybe he'd just given up. <laughs> it's not worth it. I was uh, <laughs> saying to Martin, Thomas is called Didymus in the translations. And Didymus means the twin. Any twins here? There's a couple of twins here. Maybe Thomas is hanging out with his twin. Isn't it interesting? You've got 12 disciples. One of them's a twin, but the other twin's not part of those disciples. Maybe Thomas is... Uh, this is just my speculation, by the way. Maybe he's hanging out with the other twin. And the twin's going, see, you made a big mistake. <laughs> he's dead. What are you, come on. I don't know. I don't know. But it's interesting that they tell us here that Thomas is the twin. I don't know why they do that. Anyway, this is all speculation. Whatever the reason is for his absence, he missed a great blessing. He missed a great blessing. So what happens when he finally meets with the disciples? Well, the disciples tell him. They tell him this. We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, look, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of those nails and place my hand in the inside, I will never believe. Thomas has a problem with believing. He passionately declares that he will not believe unless he sees and touches the Lord's risen body. He prescribes certain conditions which must be fulfilled before he can credit the truth of the report of others to his belief. He has these conditions. Can I just say, do you put conditions on God with things that are happening in your life? Do you say, God, you've got to cross this line, otherwise I'm not going to be a part of it? Come on. Now, we know we read about some of these in the Old Testament, don't we? The fleece, unless you do that. 
What about just stopping the sun from setting? Now, that's a good one to ask for, isn't it? Thomas had these conditions. His conditions led him to a place that he wasn't even in the place where Christ was going to be. And I think we have to be careful about those conditions that we put towards God. Those things that we say, God, you've got to do this before this can happen, before I engage at this level or whatever. He prescribes these certain conditions which must be fulfilled before he can credit that truth. Poor Thomas, he really missed out because he was not gathered with the brothers on that Sunday. But the story of Thomas, the man who just couldn't believe, doesn't end here. Praise God for that. Uh, Thank God there's a couple more verses and three more words that John tells us about this story. You see, there was a Sunday after Easter. One week later, the risen Lord appears. And we read it this here in verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. Well, hallelujah. I wonder what turned him around. And through, and though the doors were locked, <laughs> they still locked them. It's a week later. They're still feeling the fear, I reckon. Jesus came again and stands in amongst them and says, peace be with you. He does it all again. You don't need a key with Jesus. He's in your presence right there. And he stands amongst them and he drops that peace again onto them. And I can just imagine taking that big breath. Okay, calm again. And he says this. Then he says to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. You see, what really stands out to me here is the mercy and the kindness um, of the Lord. I don't know if I would be that merciful and kind. I'd be shaking him. I'm glad I am nothing like my God in that manner. Jesus wasn't harsh with Thomas in any way, was he? Jesus shows compassion and patience towards this weak disciple. He doesn't reject him. He doesn't dismiss him. He doesn't even excommunicate him, which churches are really good at when you don't believe in what they believe in. Instead, he deals with his doubt. And he does it in this manner. Notice that Jesus asks Thomas to do exactly what Thomas had asked for. See this? Thomas says, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails, and Jesus says, see my hands? Thomas says, and put my finger into the place of those nails, Jesus says, bring your finger here. Thomas says, and put my hand into his side, Jesus says, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Thomas says, I definitely will not believe. And Jesus says, stop doubting and believe. Now, Thomas's words were said a week earlier. Jesus's words are said a week later. And Jesus comes straight to the very point and pulls Thomas up on the very things that he quoted and says, okay, I will tick all the boxes. You've drawn the line, Thomas. I will now step over it and prove to you who's the boss here. Thomas had his prescriptive ideas. And, you know, I think it must have startled Thomas to actually hear Jesus quote these words, you know, verbatim. Really? He heard me? (laughs) He wasn't there when I said these things. Whoa. Yep, 
Jesus wasn't with Thomas when he said these things, yet Jesus knew what Thomas desired. And you know what? Isn't that the truth about us? There's nothing in our heart that can be hid from God. He knows it all. So he knows what you're thinking now. You have these lines, you have these questions, you have these doubts. He's hearing you right now as you're saying it. And you know, I think he's just as gracious today as he was for Thomas because he'd just been to the cross. He paid for our sin and he had risen again to bring new life. And he will speak life into those doubts, into those questions that we have, into those insecurities and those senses of, I just don't know how to move forward, I'm stuck. He has the answers for us. Now that he allowed Thomas the proof of touch, he challenges him with these words. He says, stop doubting and believe. Now the meaning behind them is to stop being content with your unbelief. Stop being content with your unbelief, Thomas. You see, it was if Thomas had a settled condition of doubt, he was like in it. He put his feet firmly into it and that's where he was going to stand. He was kind of established in this, this doubt and he wasn't going to move. But Jesus' words here can be translated, stop becoming an unbeliever and become a believer. Stop doubting and believe. Stop becoming an unbeliever, Thomas. You're going down the wrong road and you're going to give completely up on me if you keep going this direction. Turn your life around and believe. Give me everything you have. If you keep this attitude in relation to the kingdom, then it's possible you'll give up all your belief. And we don't want that. Why? Because there's so much that's beyond your understanding. So much that's beyond your understanding. That's what he's saying to Thomas, but that's what he says to us, isn't it? There is so much beyond your understanding. And we can be so prescriptive to God But he says, you have no clue what I have for you and where I want to take you and what I want to do with you and through you. I think it's interesting that it was because Thomas didn't meet with the brothers that he got himself into this position and Jesus has to pull him up on that road of disbelief, on that road of disbelief. I believe when you start to miss meeting together, your faith cools off. Maybe that's why uh, the Hebrew writer says, you know, don't forsake meeting together. That's why I love life groups, because it's when you come together that you you keep the flame alive. I was saying in the first service last night, I sat around an open fire in our backyard and we just sat under the stars with the logs and had a wonderful time cooking marshmallows. And um, the logs, when they're all together, lots of heat, but then they roll apart and then the heat drops. And I, I go, Fabian, get the big stick, push them all together again. Because that's what it's like, isn't it? When you're not with other Christians, your flames start to go out. You need to come together. You need to be there so you can inject into each other's life. The Spirit wants to work through you to work in those people. And they want to need work. He wants to work in them to work in you. That's why we meet together. That's why we come together. Keep that flame alive. He works in us because we are body. Because we are one in him. That's what our theme is. And that's what Jesus said before he left. But the bigger lesson here is this. We all need to learn the lesson of not doubting God. You know, God is big enough to do what, he, what we think cannot be done. I'll say it again. God is big enough to do what we think cannot be done. 
He's not confined by time as we are. He has all the resources at his discretion and to use when he desires, not when we desire. And God is not limited. So we must not limit him by drawing that line and saying, "Ah," and he goes, hold on, let me run your life. God will do what he wants, the way he wants to do it, when he desires to do it. That's his call. So if you are his, then you need to make sure you do his will, his way with him. It's a lesson we all have to learn this side of heaven. We need to learn to do his will, his way with him. And finally, the lights come on for Thomas. And I'm happy to say Thomas makes this statement. My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. And you know, this is really a cry of personal faith, isn't it? It's a cry of personal conviction for Thomas. Meeting with the disciples the Sunday after Easter really did something to him. Changed his world. He had a fresh vision of the risen Lord. He made a rededication of his life. His faith was revived. Hallelujah. What Thomas said became the pattern of confession really for all believers. Isn't that true? See, what Thomas said was, he is my Adonai and my Elohim, my Lord and my God. See, others had called him Jesus or they called him the Christ or they called him Joseph's son or they said he was a good teacher or he was the miracle worker. Even Peter said, well, you are the son of God. But Thomas makes this amazing statement, you are both Lord and God. And with that, he got the blessing that gives us the blessing. I'm going to ask the band to come on up. Come on up. We're just going to close with a song. Can I just show you this? If you have a look, my Lord and my God, a thing that I find very interesting here is what Jesus didn't say about these words. What Jesus didn't say. Have a think about it, about this statement. Jesus didn't deny this. Now, the reason I say that is because there's many cults, many religions and many sects that will not say this about Jesus. Buddhists will not call him my Lord and my God. Jewish uh, faith will not call him my Lord and my God. Muslims won't call him my Lord and my God. Jehovah's Witness won't call him my Lord and my God. Mormons won't call him my Lord and my God. Jesus said, I am this by not saying anything. Thomas made a statement. He said, that's who I am. That's why I stand as a Christian today, following after him, not after a religion or a cult or a sect. Because of this very statement that Thomas said about Jesus, he claimed it. And he can be the Lord and God of our life. Let me show you a verse. This follows this conversation. Sorry, here it is here. Jesus told Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, I thank Thomas for doubting. Because this verse wouldn't be there if Thomas hadn't doubted. Because this is all about my life here. You have a look at that. Because you have seen me, you have believed, but blessed are those who have not seen him. Ah, that's me. I have not physically seen Jesus. And he says, you will be blessed. 
See, God has a blessing for us. And it goes like this. It's not what we see, but what we do not see. That's the strength of our heart. It's not what we see, but what we do not see. That's the strength of our heart. And it goes like this. Paul says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Get your head around that. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Isn't that true? You see, I believe there's a danger in only seeing, in making sight the satisfaction of curiosity, and then being content in that. Seeing and touching may help faith, but it can never produce it. Having faith in God means believing something that is far greater than our human minds can comprehend. Far greater than your mind can comprehend is our living God. It's grabbing hold of the unseen and all that he reveals about himself to us. This account here in John 20, I think, is a perfect example of what God has for you and it's what it's expressed very much so here in our vision at LifeGate. Jesus desires us to live in the freedom that he has for us. Only the freedom that he can give in the midst of whatever's happening in your life. He can take us from being scared and worried and anxious and lost and just doubting individuals to become followers of his that are capable to do more than we could ever imagine of ourselves. And can I say that? There are things in your life that you think, I can't do that. Well, if God's got his hand upon that, don't limit him. I've had this conversation all week with Fiona. She's not here. I mentioned it in the first service. She's playing the guitar at Elevate. She is so nervous. She's never played the guitar out the front. And all week she's been practicing and trying. I said, look, God has his hand upon you. You've been invited. You've said yes. You've responded. You think you're not good at it. Let God have that. You just give him what you have. He will do the rest. And isn't that like for all of us? You must carry worries or pains or hurts or anxiousness. Give it to him. Because we fix our eyes not on what he's seen. Your eyes will tell you the lie. But on what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You see, Jesus frees us from our past, our thoughts, those words that hold us back, and he sends us into the future that he has planned for us. And therefore, he will direct the purpose he has for you. I'm going to ask those who are on the prayer roster, would you like to come on out? Because maybe there's people here this morning that would like prayer. If there's something that you want to bring, something that is concerns you, that's worried, that is bigger than your sight and it's captivated your view, you need to bring it back under God. And you need to have prayer. Because these people can stand with you in prayer and take you through it. Let's pray. Great God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you empower and equip us through your indwelling Holy Spirit to overcome that which we as humans fall into so often and that is we bring you down to our level we think you can only do what we can do and that's why Thomas had his problem how do people get back up from the dead but he had to see you in a new light he had to see you in all your greatness 
He had to see you. And our challenge is to fix our eyes on that which is unseen. We need to see you just as much and know how you work in us and through us. Challenge us, Lord, as we go forth this week and glorify your name through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.